Man, I want to welcome everybody who's watching online. If you're out of town, we have people who are sick. We're so thankful that you're here today. So this week was supposed to be the problem with Park Place Part 2. And if you saw on social media, I decided to shift that, and we'll be wrapping that up next week. But, but this week has been, been a tough week for our country, and I think I would be remiss if I didn't really kind of address where we are right now as a nation. And so I don't want the ostrich syndrome where we just stick our head in the sand and pretend like there's no problems in this world. And so I've decided to pivot. And, and basically what I want to talk about today is another school shooting. So now what? I, I came home from work on Tuesday and saw that there was a lot of chatter on social media about something that happened in, in Texas. And, and much like many of you, I went home and, and turned on the TV and just was sick to my stomach. Sick to my stomach for a variety of reasons. Uh, I think you felt the same dichotomy of emotions, and the same mixed feelings of anger, fear, just to the spot where I'm like, dude, what? enough is enough. Like, when does it end? And, and what do we need to do as a community during these times? I have two young daughters, both are school age. And, and so my mind started kind of going back to, I remember when I was a, a public school teacher and, and I remember the, the first year was when I taught fifth grade and we're doing an active shooter drill. And I think you should, There's nothing wrong with that. But it was a weird time for me because I'm looking at 10-year-olds in the eye and telling them, this is what you need to do if someone comes in this room to try to kill you. And then what does that segue look like when it's like, hey, it's time to take out your history books. It's time for a pop quiz. Like, what does that look like? And, and, and a 10-year-old shouldn't have that on their mind. But the world we live in, they need to have that on their mind. I've also thinking about what initially always happens is the devil seeps in in the midst of tragedy and divides us even further because not two seconds go by and the political rhetoric starts to spill in. One way or the other, it divides us and we fall for it hook, line, and sinker every time. It also bothers me because I feel like I have to be the one to tell people and justify why God allows this stuff to happen. Do you ever feel that pressure? When you have your agnostic friends, your atheist friends, your unsaved friends, and they present a very good question of saying, what kind of God would allow this to happen? And I don't know how to respond to that. But here is the good news. I'm letting you off the hook. Because God doesn't want us to be his defense attorney. He doesn't need us to be his defense attorney. What he needs us to be is his megaphone. He needs us to amplify his message, not defend his character. And that's really what I want to talk about today is why? And what now? What's the answer? Is the answer more policies? Maybe. Maybe not. I don't think the answer is in what man or woman can do. Why, why does this happen, though? Because enough's enough. Why does it happen? 
Is it the moral decay of our country? Part of it. Is it the deterioration of the home in which the population of godly men that are the husbands and fathers that families deserve, that God wants, and it's, the number gets smaller? That's probably part of it. Is it that church is no longer a priority to most Americans and we put everything above church, weather, convenience, professional sports, kids' sports? I mean, I feel that pressure too. Aren't you glad you came today? <laughs> the people who are online are like, uh-oh. <laughs> is it because they no longer make church a priority? I think it's part of it too. But I get emotional because it feels like the bad guys are winning. And it feels like evil is just too much to overcome. And I want to know what is the answer. And, and here is where I want us to hover over for the next little bit, is the answer is not found in man. The answer is found in the Word of God. And that's what we're going to study today. I'm a Jesus guy. You'll catch that real quick if you ever even hear me preach one message. I'm a Jesus guy. So we're going to be looking at two different times that Jesus spoke to a crowd that was hurting, to a crowd that was confused, to an environment in which it felt like evil was winning. Because I think that we can be the megaphone and the mouthpiece for what the Word of God says. And I think it's okay if you feel a mixed bag of emotions and outrage and anger the elimination of innocent lives should always make you at some level angry. The innocent lives, that's a heartbeat from the womb to the tomb. And when those things get eliminated or murdered, we should never be okay with it. But what do we do about it? I want to talk first about what is arguably, I don't even know it's arguably, the most famous sermon ever given by the most famous preacher of all time. And it's Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. That's the first of two things that we're going to focus on today. And I believe that God can speak to you today, no matter where you are and no matter what your level of depravity is right now. So let's set up the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you were to read the Sermon on the Mount, it would take you approximately 10 minutes. Now, unfortunately for you, I'm not Jesus, so it's going to take about 30, all right? But he gave the most powerful sermon in 10 minutes. And it starts with this thing called the Beatitudes, Blessed Artha. You may be familiar with it if you've been raised in church. If you haven't, don't worry. We're going to go through it today. But before I can just really give you what he says, you know what I like to do is set up the context because I believe the word of God is more powerful if we can look at the author, audience, and author's intent and what they were going through at the time. And the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, it wasn't called that. It was a sermon that Jesus gave on a mountainside, which is why we call it that. That would be the equivalent of me saying this is the sermon from the pulpit on Sunday morning. Like, that's not the message title. He didn't get up there and be like, <clears throat> excuse me, today is the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> but, but I want to tell you this. That joke's funnier at 11 o'clock, just so you know. I, I, I wanted to set this up real quick, though, because this is Jesus giving this sermon. Now, now, 
when I went to Israel, I saw this area where this took place, where they think it took place. And it's right in this town called Capernaum. And it's right on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus is sitting up on this hillside. It's actually beautiful. I mean, to sit up there and see the Sea of Galilee, like you feel the presence of God. And it also acted as kind of like this, um, it, it naturally projected his voice because of the topography and the way that the water would echo back. And, and so, believe it or not, back then when the rabbi or the teacher would speak, he would sit down and everyone else would stand up. So imagine if that's what what this looked like this morning. <laughs> and, and it would probably help some of you from falling asleep, but, but maybe not. But Jesus is up on the Sermon of the Mount, and he's about to give what is going to be a very epic sermon. But this is really early in his ministry, really early. And so word had started to spread that there possibly was the Messiah that they've heard about. And the people are desperate. They're desperate because, remember, they're coming off of 400 years of silence. The intertestamental period between Malachi and Matthew, there's 400 years where they did not hear from God. Not one prophet, not one word from God. And now the Roman Empire is gaining power. See, the story of Jewish history is always one of difficulty. It's one of occupation, slavery, forcing them to spread out. It's never been easy to be an Israelite, even to this day. If those are God's people, and it's never been easy, why would you and I think that now following Jesus is going to be easy? Especially when Jesus said all the time, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. But they're desperate at this time. And every time that God's people have been at the moment of desperation, God would send a man to relieve some of that pressure and give them hope. Whether it was the Egyptian slavery and God sent Moses, if it was, if it was the uh, uh, Babylonian captivity and God sent Nehemiah, if it was the Assyrians and he sent Judas Maccabeus, like there's always somebody in the moment of this is the most tense and the most hopelessness, God would send somebody. And let me tell you who he's sending right now in this moment of hopelessness and where it's tense and where it feels like the bad guys are winning. It's not one man or one woe man. It's the local church. God is sending us to now be the proclamation of hope. I, I, I want to just lean onto this for just a moment and then we're going to jump into scripture. Hope can only exist in an area where there's no hope. The message of Jesus is always the message of hope. It's like saying you can have light in a room that's already light. No, no, no. Light can only be brightest and exist where it's dark. Hope can only exist in an area where there is no hope, where it seems like it is hopeless. That's where hope can exist. Can I tell you what? You're not gonna have hope when you take your last breath. Hope does not exist at that point. You want to know why? Because you're in the presence of the almighty God, the creator of the universe, who has called you by name. And on the other side of eternity, we don't need hope because it is a perfect place. This is worth celebrating, church. Come on. I feel the presence of God in this place. I hope you do. But in the meantime, we have to have hope. 
Hope is all we have. Hope that Jesus is who he said he was. And I hope that what God said is waiting for us on the other side of our last breath is true. So this crowd comes together on the hillside of Capernaum on the northern shore of Galilee and they're ready because now this Messiah from Nazareth who may or may not be the son of God incarnate who says he is and word is spreading now he is going to take down the Roman Empire they're expecting now that the Messiah is going to come he's going to take down the Roman Empire and he's going to build the kingdom of God here on earth and they're expecting it because the bad guys have been winning for too long and now here's Jesus, and this is what they're expecting. But I want you to hear what they get. We're in Matthew chapter 5. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and began, he began to teach them. Now, that's important, that one word, them. Jesus was never intending to preach it to the crowd. He was preaching it to his disciples. Why? Because he knew they would have to be the ones that would go out and spread this message. The world won't, be, won't get what he's about to say. They just won't. That's why he needs the men and women who are listening to the message to go back to their neighborhoods so that they could proclaim it. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This isn't what they expected. This isn't what it was supposed to be. The Messiah is supposed to come and kill all the bad guys. The Messiah is supposed to show up and make everything here on earth perfect. And he could have done that. But he's about to give them something better. I've always thought that this is a weird sermon, a weird words that Jesus would say. Why on earth would I be blessed if I'm mourning? Why on earth would I be blessed if I'm poor in spirit? It seems counterintuitive. What are you, you're telling me I'm blessed when I mourn? You're telling me I'm blessed when I'm hurting? How does that make sense? You know what that word in the Greek means? Literally means a blessing. Like you are receiving a blessing when you mourn, when you're poor in spirit, when you thirst for righteousness. Doesn't feel like much of a blessing to me. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Why would I rejoice? This week's been a hard week. Has been for a lot of people. It's been more difficult for some. Here's why I think that you're blessed 
during those times. Because you don't realize that Jesus is all you need when you're in a spot where Jesus, until you're in a spot where Jesus is all you have. I look back at some of the worst days of my life when my marriage was about to end, where I had no hope, and that's the closest to God I ever felt. And I'm thankful that my marriage survived, and I'm thankful that we've grown. But in some weird way, there's a piece of me that misses how close God felt during that time. How can you be blessed when you are broken? How can you be blessed when you are mourning? Because I believe that's when you are more susceptible to the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life. I know most of you, and I hear your stories. I mourn with you. Some of you are going through difficult times right now. Some of you in the past year have had to bury a spouse. Some of you have children who are sick. Some of you have lost your job. Some of you have gone through some very difficult things. I just spoke to someone a couple of days ago that unexpectedly lost their job and things are difficult. And I talked to him and he said, you know, I feel okay about it. I shouldn't. But I do because I really feel like God is going to take care of us. That's the message during the difficult times that the world needs to hear. That's the message. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I love the message of the gospel because of this. Because Jesus never did the bait and switch. He never went to everybody and said, hey, if you follow me, things are going to be fantastic. The bad guys will always lose. You'll have so much money. Your marriage is going to be great. Your sex life is going to go through the roof if you just follow me. He didn't do any of that. I love the message of the gospel because we put the cross right on the front cover. An instrument of death. That's saying this whole thing doesn't mean that this side of eternity is going to get good. It means that I have something promised for you on the other side that will last forever, that will be worth it. That's the message of the gospel. And when Jesus shows up and he tells everybody the Beatitudes, which is what we call the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, and he starts telling them, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is what we need to understand. The message of Jesus will always be the message of pursuing the broken. It will always be the message of broken people needing a savior. Why would we think it would be any different for us? We just wrapped up a study on Revelation. It was a 10, I think a 10 week study. And, and I hate to tell you this, but based upon what we studied in the word of God, things aren't gonna get better. Aren't you glad you came to church today? We see that God laid out in scripture that things are going to get more and more evil as the end times approach. And you gotta be completely out of touch with reality if you don't see that we are in the birth pains right now of what's gonna be the end times very soon. 
On the Sermon of the Mount, they expected a Savior to eradicate evil. But instead, what he said is, this is the blueprint to eternity where you will not need hope, where you will not face cancer, where you will not face being just, the sin doesn't exist. And he keeps telling them that over and over and over again. And then inevitably, his disciples would say, but when? When? Because you and I were on this side of eternity. And it's, it's, it's easy to say, yeah, things are going to get better over there, but tomorrow I got to wake up and face this place. And there's people that their children aren't around anymore. I think maybe we have this idea that God just is absent from the lives of humanity and maybe is just sitting up on his throne in the third heaven and says, just rub some dirt on it and you'll, you'll be all right. And that's not my savior at all. I think he's very much mourning when these things happen. But Paul says in 1 Thessalonians that though we are to mourn, we are not to mourn as those without hope. Hope is the hallmark of God's people and hope amplifies the loudest in hopeless situations. So, I want to shift to the second part and talk about what does that hope look like and what do we do about it? But my mind goes to one of my favorite book series of all time, The Chronicles of Narnia. And in this one part of The Chronicles of Narnia, there's Aslan, by the way, side note, I thought my whole life his name was Asland with a D. And like a week, no, a week, a year ago, I was preaching on something with the Chronicles of Narnia and my wife after comes up and she goes, you know, it's Aslan. There's no D. And I'm like, what? I don't even know what, what this world is coming to anymore. It's not Asland. It's Aslan. Tom Price sent me a picture a couple days ago uh, that Arby's is now selling hamburgers, and I'm the same feeling. I'm like, what is this world? I don't even recognize these things anymore. Like, anyways. <laughs> and in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is one of those books, Aslan, who represents Jesus, he's a lion, is speaking to little Lucy, the family. And he's about to leave her. And she's starting to feel hopeless, like, I, no, 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 I need, I need you around. And I want you to hear this. Aslan says to Lucy, do not look so sad. We shall meet again soon. And Lucy says, please, Aslan. Aslan did it again. <laughs> please, Aslan, what do you call soon? And Aslan looks down at little Lucy, the lion of Judah, and he says, I call all times soon. When somebody passes away, I heard a preacher one time say this, and it was some of the best advice I've ever had. Because when things go bad or going bad, they call the preacher. And like, I think they expect me to walk into the hospital room and just have some phrase, you know, and it's going to make everything better. But I heard a preacher one time give me great advice. He said, the greater the wound, the less you talk. I used to tell my students when I was a teacher, you got two ears and one mouth. That's the ratio. <laughs> but the greater the pain, the less you talk. I don't have a solution, nor do you want a solution from me. 
But when somebody does pass away, my sympathy shifts immediately from them to the hurting people that are left on this side of eternity. Because the reality is every person sitting next to you at some point in time will die. And I know that may sound pessimistic on the surface, but I promise you it's not. I want you to hear what Jesus told everybody about what was waiting for them. And I'm going to read a portion of scripture, and then we're going to unpack it. And we're going to look at what that would have meant to a Jewish audience. And then I want to read it again. Because we have to cling to the Bible in these times. It's the living word of God that can still speak to his people. And we have to cling to the word of God. We're, we're, we're not going to be saved out of this through the Republican or the Democratic Party. Not that you probably think that anyways. It has to be the word of God. So I want you to hear this portion of scripture. And if you've heard it before, lean into it with fresh ears. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place I am going. It's a pretty cool phrase, like portion of scripture. Like I hear that and I'm like, that sounds nice. Yeah, absolutely. But what does that have to do with where I am right now? Because I'm hurting. Again, author, audience, author's intent. I want you to hear what this would have meant to the audience that was listening when Jesus is talking about, I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there are many rooms. Put that picture up if we have it, please. This is in Capernaum, and the big house that's behind it is actually, clearly you can tell what's a ruin and what isn't, <laughs> right? But, but the big house right here that's like this new building, it's, it's kind of cool. This has nothing to do with the sermon, but I think you'd find this interesting, is where they say Peter's house was, and they say that underneath that that building is where Peter's mother's mother or mother-in-law, they don't know, his house where they lowered the person through the roof for Jesus to heal, that this happened here. So if that did happen at Peter's house or mother-in-law's house, I would imagine Peter probably didn't take that too well as they were destroying his roof and his house. Like this is Peter, Peter pre-Pentecost, like the Peter that cusses girls for no reason. Like imagine how he took that. <laughs> uh, anyways, so that's where that is. But the reason that I, I showed you this is because I wanted you to see the ruins that are in front of it. This is going to give you a mental idea of what a house would look like. This right in front is a house. It would have been somebody's house. It looks kind of like a little maze right now with a rat running to get a piece of cheese. But, but I want you again I don't ever want you to look at this portion of scripture again the same way. I want you to look at it like this. There's a Jewish wedding tradition. And in the Jewish wedding tradition, here's what would happen. 
the marriage would be arranged, right? They would agree on the terms of the marriage. They would then have the ceremony. It would be a done deal. And then the groom would leave his bride. And he would go back to his father's house to start adding a room for him and his wife. And this process would take approximately a year, around a year. So imagine for a moment, you get married, you may kiss the bride, things are awesome, but your honeymoon ain't gonna happen for about another year. Because he goes back to his father's property and adds another room to it. But, but he put a ring on it, so he's gonna come back. This is his bride. Now attach this, attach deep theological truths to this story so that when you read it, you'll never look at it the same again. The bride wouldn't know when Jesus was coming back. Oh, I just spoiled it, my bad. The bride wouldn't know when the groom was coming back. This is a metaphor for Jesus coming back for his church and his bride. Okay, whatever, I messed that up. It's like you didn't know anyways. Come on now, be serious. She didn't know when he was gonna come back for her. But she knew it would be around a year. And when it got closer, this anticipation was building of when the groom would come back for his bride. And you knew it was getting closer and the whole town would be ready for it. And even at night when it got close enough, she would light the oil lamps in the window in case he came back at night. Because they were ready. And then the time would finally come where the room was prepared and finished. And the groom would blow the horn, probably a shofar, right as he entered the city to come back for his bride, come back for his love, to fulfill the promise that he made to her in front of everyone. And that horn would blow, and the whole town would hear it, and they would come out to celebrate because now the groom is back for his bride like he said he would be. Now, Let's go back and read this scripture again with this mindset. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have not told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, you know that I will come back and take you with me so that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place that I'm going. To the audience, they would have known right away exactly what he was talking about. And I'm here today to let you know, no matter how hopeless the situation may seem, if Jesus is who he said he was, he will come back for his people. He is preparing a place that is perfect, that does not need hope, that does not need light, because God is there. And if he's coming back for his people, and if all who fall asleep in him are there to be absent from the body, is to be present from the Lord, then when somebody dies, there is no need to lament for them any longer. But I want to lean into two other small verses that will show you who the heart of God is during these times. The first one's one psalm. It's out of Psalm 56. 
I love going through and seeing the Psalms that King David wrote and lining them up with the timeline of his life and seeing what was going on when he wrote that because it gives it so much depth because I can relate to King David. <laughs> Messing up so many times, having seasons where you feel like God has forgotten about you and is far from you, having triumphs, having success, having marital issues. David suffered a miscarriage. He knows all of these different depths of pain. And in this particular psalm is when he had been seized by the Philistines and he thought his life was about to end. And I think he's looking back at all of the issues that he created himself because of his own sin. And I want you to hear these words. Lean into this. This is David writing, talking to God. You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. And then later he writes this. Let's lean into this. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Make no mistake, church, the depravity of man is real. Make no mistake, evil will exist at all times until Jesus comes back for his people. What do we do now? Another school shooting, what now? Now's the time for the church to pray and for the church to be a megaphone for the message of God, which is the message of hope. God hears the cries of his people. So my challenge to you is this week, as you leave, be a megaphone for the message of God rather than, rather than an instrument for division. There will always be hurting people. There will always be broken people. Some of you are sitting next to a broken, hurting person right now. Let's be a megaphone for the message of hope. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing a song that we've already sang. I think it's pretty appropriate we're going to sing the Father's House. And I'm going to come up and dismiss you after and we're going to have a time together of just short corporate prayer for our country, for our government, and for the Big C Church. God has always sent a group of people or a man or a woman to proclaim the message of hope during the most difficult times. We're in difficult times. Will you be used by God?